To ship, of course. It's time again for Build Engineering DevOps, Release Management, and Everything Between. I am your host, Paul Reed, SoberBuildEng on Twitter, and at SoberBuildEngineer.com, who's with me for episode, what are we up to now, 43? This is Sasha at Sasha underscore D on Twitter, and um, I don't remember my website anymore. Thefridayredhead.com? <laughs> I haven't published to it in months. <laughs> and this is Yusuf at Bill Santos on Twitter. And we have a special guest entering the arena. Who's that? This is Pete Cheslock at Pete Cheslock on Twitter and everywhere else. <laughs> Come yeah. on, it's at Director of DevOps. Come yeah. on. <laughs> DevOpsThoughtLeader.com. Does this constitute Pete Cheslock? Uh, by the end of this uh, podcast, it will be, I'm guessing. <laughs> How's everyone doing? I'm pretty good. Good. Yeah, um, great. Good, good. How are you doing? I am doing well. In fact, you and I just got to recently see each other at DevOps Days Pittsburgh. We're actually going to be talking about that later in the, the episode, but uh, it was a pretty amazing event, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was, actually. It, uh, it had that feel of some of the earlier DevOps Days where it was still kind of small, I think. I think the organizers were telling me maybe around 200 people showed up. It, it, it felt about, about that size, so. A lot of good conversations, and in fact, like I said, we talked about that shortly. In fact, we should also mention our friends over at the Food Fight Show did an episode around Pittsburgh DevOps Days. You should go check that out. We'll put a link in the show notes. They interviewed a couple of the speakers as well as did an open panel discussion with attendees there about their experiences and what their favorite talks were. It turned out to be a fascinating set of episodes. Again, we'll link to those in the show notes. For episode 43, we're going to be talking about burnout, where the signs of burnout. This is actually something that we did an open space on at DevOps Days Pittsburgh, so we're going to be looking a little bit uh, more at that. I think it's something we struggle with a lot as an industry, so we're going to delve into that a little bit. But first up, as we always do, news and views. I used to have actually pointed this out just in time for DockerCon. Docker 1.0 shipped. Oh, shit, that Docker. Yeah, so Docker, <laughs> Docker has hit uh, version 1.0, so this is... Uh, I guess the, the official stable release. It's so amazing that they got 1.0 to ship at the exact same time as DockerCon. It's very convenient. Like, oh. Very convenient. How do they do that? <laughs> have to ask James and find out. Oh. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thousands yeah. of engineers working daily around the clock, I'm sure. <laughs> to get all that in. Yeah, no, they, they, uh, it looks like they added a uh, couple features in for the, the 1.0 release, but uh, yeah. Uh, and it's funny, it says, uh, many organizations have cheerfully ignored our do not run in production warnings. So it's, yes, it's one of those, uh, it's now 1.0 and actually stable. So if you're not using Docker, you can now use it. Doesn't mean you should be running it in production anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's still wanna, a container. Yeah, you might want to definitely still do some testing and, you know, follow eh, a good release fine, process, right? you know. <laughs> probably fine, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, next up, we've got SSL certificate handling is hard, part 9,342. It looks like uh, this was a couple weeks ago now, but uh, Apple forgot to renew its SSL cert, breaking OS 10 software update. They, I guess, fixed it, but this was during the uh, height of the Heartbleed issue, and actually that was one of the Heartbleed vulnerability sites caught this. I thought I'd bring it up because um, apparently, uh, actually, uh, OpenSSL is imploding again. Did you guys hear that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's like Heartbleed version 2.0. Um, but yeah, I, I again, I don't know how this happens. Um, well, you actually, you know exactly how this happens, which is the person that caught it last year when this issue occurred, or the two years ago when it occurred, they don't work there anymore. So. <laughs> and nobody, I, yeah, I don't know. We've don't discussed know. this actually, and how we like everybody always forgets to get the SSL certs updated for websites. I mean, yeah. it happens all the time. I, yeah, I don't, and I don't know how, but it does. It's like that, and like nobody's paying attention. Yeah, exactly. If only there was some service that would help with this. I don't, I don't know. There's a free pro tip for new startup SSL management. Are you really going to give somebody else your SSL certs to manage? No, no, no. Just It would be nice if there was, and I'm actually sure there's probably some website that does this, but the, that did automatic scanning oh, and, like a, and notification. Like a yeah. yeah, yeah. there's your free startup idea. Seth is on an airplane right now, but uh, I wanted to bring this up for all the Perforce lovers in the crowd, myself included. There was actually a post by the chief architect over at Perforce 
talking about basically how to mimic a Git sort of workflow using P4D locally, and so we'll link to that in the show notes. But it's kind of funny because uh, he's got the example of like he even down to where to put the repository. I think he put you makes it so you can like put it in instead of .git, it's like .p4d or something like that. So I thought it was kind of you know it's like you can do that sort of thing with Perforce too. So it's kind of fun. And then last up, something Yusuf pointed us to, highest paid software engineers chopped by a, a bunch of different ways, some statistics. And it looks like Pakistan is has the highest ratio. But uh, you were saying, was it Switzerland is the highest paid? Yeah, so Switzerland has the, the highest sort of median annual pay for, for software engineers. So, yeah, you know, everybody should move this. Compared to what, the world or other people in the same country? Uh, I think in, that's a good point. I think it's in the same country. Yeah, I think that is in the same country. Mm -hmm. Do you you know if it includes just a straight, like, cash comp, or does that include, like, benefits also, just because, as we know, a lot of European countries kind of far outweigh their their benefits versus the U.S.? That's a good Uh, question. That's a very good question, and pay does include base annual salary, bonuses, profit sharing, tips, commissions, and other forms of cash earnings as applicable. Is that pre-tax or post-tax, too, because that makes a big difference. Yes. I'm I'm guessing always (laughs) pre-tax. Makes it look better. Uh, yeah, you look at the uh, ratio. So it's the ratio of median software engineer to pay to average income. We're not in the top 10. In fact, we're down at number uh, 21. The top 10 are an interesting set of countries. Pakistan, India, South Africa, Bulgaria, China, Ukraine, Philippines. That's because 99% of the people who live in those places make nothing. Yeah, that's true. Brazil, Egypt, Mexico rounds out the I mean, top that's 10. really what's going on there, I think. Yeah, Yep. Mm. Yeah. Actually, it's funny. All of the countries in the top ten, the median income is over twice what it is for the the standard income. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, interesting statistics. Uh, go take a look at United States at one point three eight times the median income. Well, next up, we're going to be talking about burnout uh, here on the Ship Show. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So at some point or another in time, most of us have felt the effects of burnout in our jobs and roles and have had to contend with that problem. Uh, So we thought it would be an interesting topic to take a look at. Uh, What are the signs of burnout? Uh, What are some of the things you can do about it? What are some of the uh, causes and and, uh, what are some of the things that uh, may be surprising to realize when you're burnout. So uh, joining the panel to talk about this important topic tonight uh, is Mr. Cheslock. So yeah, you brought this topic up because uh, it sounds like possibly something that may have been forefront in your life recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely something that's been on my mind. And I was trying to think if we were talking about it before um, before the conference actually started or during, I, I couldn't really remember. But yeah, so you know, as some people may or may not know, I've been kind of taking some time off the past almost four weeks now. Uh, I was working at Dyn for about a year and a half, and you know, I'm not going to say that burnout was you know 100 the reason why you know I decided to take some time off, but it definitely is is a factor that kind of plays into it. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, as as you kind of talk and see more and more people in, especially like in the ops or front line. I mean, even a lot of engineers who kind of sit in the front line uh, more so nowadays, you really see them putting in just these insane hours and just literally working themselves to death. And it just kind of grinds in you over time. So it was something that was definitely I've been thinking of as well, just because I've been in this kind of marathon sprint for many years of startup job to, you know, no break to next job to no break. And I would just jump from job to job every like three, four years or so. Yeah. Um, So this is kind of like the first time I've taken just kind of stopped and just taken a break to just kind of like reset my compass a bit. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, burnouts are definitely a real thing, so. Yeah, well, and it's funny because um, we talk, you know, you you hear the uh, treatment of this topic, like it's a big deal at like conferences and stuff. And I'm curious what the panel thinks. Why do you think it is so prevalent in uh, the ops kind of area? I think, oh, well, I think that we have uh, a strong streak of OCD, honestly. A lot of us need to know why things don't work 
a lot of us need to get to the bottom of things, get to the end of something, control something, master it, understand it. And I think that that is a lot of it. Do you think there's any uh, hero sort of complex going on there? Uh, I mean, because that's something that uh, Jennifer Davis gave a great presentation, actually, at DevOps Days Pittsburgh and, and spurred some discussion around uh, the presentation was called, uh, what was it, From from Hero to Zero? And she was talking about this, like, hero complex of, I got to save the, you know, the site's down, I have to fix it, you know, and it has to be me. Do you think that's part of it? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've gotten into that mode before. I mean, I think it's something where, I, I don't know about other people, but kind of got a little emotionally attached to, maybe not emotionally attached, but you got somewhat attached to the systems that you're dealing with, and you're kind of like, oh, I got to have everything up and running, and you tend to kind of forget about yourself, basically. I mean, you know, kind of physical, mental, emotional health, yeah. Yeah, Yusuf, it's interesting. I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about that because you and I share uh, that release engineering background. Do you think, I, I mean, I've certainly been burnt out in a role and I, so I'm curious, like, have, have you seen that uh, in your experiences in the kind of release engineering? Yeah, I mean, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that that's exclusive to uh, release engineers. I mean, obviously, engineers from different um, backgrounds and obviously face that issue, but I personally face that issue in, in a role as a, as a release engineer, um, especially when there was a customer involved. And, you know, the customer kind of has high expectations and they paid a lot of money to get the level of service and you're kind of that frontline person that they talk to and, and they're expecting, you know, you and the company that you work for deliver. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, it seems like, and Pete and Sasha, correct me if I'm kind of way off on this, you know, on the ops side, when you're operating a website or a service, there's stress from if that service goes down or has a problem. On the release side, it's interesting to me because it, that seems like it's something you would be able to plan out better. But it, you said, I'm sure, you know, you were saying this, um, and I'm glad you did. It's like, you know, all of this planning is great until somebody writes you that million-dollar support check, and it's like, you will do this one-off release right now, and you will do it, you know, Friday at 5, because they paid us the big check. Yeah. Um, right. right. <laughs> yeah. So, since you, Pete, had the most sort of re recent experience sort of with this, for you, what were the signs of burnout? What, what, uh... Yeah, yeah, so... I mean, I wouldn't even say, like, more recently, I, I definitely don't think I was burnt out now. It was more of, like, kind of leftover from my previous startup. So, you know, worked at a company called Sonian that, I mean, I really loved it, loved all the people there. But it's it was, like, an eight-person company when I started. And very early when I started, we, we got very successful. We, we had basically a partner that just opened the floodgates in sales. And so the sales scaled much faster than our ability to actually keep the system running for them. So it was a lot of manual kind of hand-holding to kind of keep things going and you know that continued for about a year or so just really where there's only maybe a handful of us that even existed that were working there while we were trying to kind of build out every other part of it so you know as for some of the warning signs I mean my physical health took a, a big hit for sure I mean I would spend you know much of my time just sitting in front of my computer at all hours really trying to just keep kind of working it's like you want to kind of keep ahead of the game even though there's like they'll they'll never be an end to that work. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, when I was struggling with this, and, and I think this is probably a component of it, you know, the mental component around you get into this sort of, like, you were saying that you were working a lot because you were wanting to stay ahead of the curve. So it's like you're sprinting, and then depending on the environment, people may notice that and be like, oh, that's the normal pace now. So it's like you're on the treadmill, and the treadmill's on level 30, right? And they're like, oh, that's the normal. Okay, make it 35 now. And so there's not any slowing down at all. Right. You know, you, you it's like this sort of push on that side. It's interesting you brought up the health thing, because I was thinking, too, you know, when I was in that position, you were saying you're at your computer all the time, and you start just eating, like, like you just oh, eat garbage yeah. all the time, you know, and and so it's it's not only this you no know, movement and and the the health impact from that, but it's like you're you're just eating. Well, you know what uh, a very common action is for a lot of times that I saw, and I've seen this at multiple companies over the last 15 years, this would happen is, you know, when the team's working, the team's working hard, what, is, what does your boss do? He buys lunch. He's yeah. He's going to pick up lunch. Or dinner, yep. Yeah, or dinner, right? And it's it's obviously and way dinner. more, yeah, it's <laughs> way more prevalent, obviously, where you are out in San Francisco, where breakfast, lunch, and dinner are all, are all taken care of. Like, they don't want you to stop. And, right. 
you know, and you'll stop to eat, but you're probably still talking about work stuff. So, I mean, I, I speak definitely more from the kind of East Coast world where it's definitely more, way more, I would say, nine to five than kind of the West Coast, you know, time frame. Less so nowadays, though. I mean, this was 10 or so years ago when I moved here, I noticed it, but it's definitely less and less now, so. Yeah. I, you brought up a really interesting point, and I'd be curious what everyone thinks about this, about the effect being cumulative. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I'm going to assert that this is a thing. I've, and, and I can only say that, like, ask me in two years if it's actually a thing, because this is the first time I'm actually taking a real break uh, between places. Mm-hmm. But for the last eight years, I've gone from a job to a next job, where you leave on Friday and you start on Monday. Yeah. Um, and I did that, let's say, four times or something in eight years. Um, and so, but at the, because I have this weird thing in my head, which is like, got to keep working, always got to keep working, like, got to gotta make money, got to pay the bills, all that stuff, like, just kind of running down the rat race or whatever. And, yeah, well, so- a quick aside to that, because this thing, that came up during the, the we had a so so there was Jennifer's talk, which is great. We'll link to that in the show notes. You should definitely watch it. It was hugely popular talk. I got a lot of laughs, but also a really important topic. And it prompted this open space on burnout. In fact, burnout.io. It's actually a project on GitHub, and it was created by I'm probably going to butcher his name. But Benjamin Mo- Mosier, he was actually at DevOps Days Pittsburgh, and um, he was in part of that open space. But we were talking about culturally, I don't know about you, but I've had this problem where it's like my grandmother grew up during the Depression, and so it was like you can't not have a job. You, you have to have a job, right? And that was very kind of core to the ethos you know, oh, that yeah. I was just raised with, even though I had, when I was burnt out, I had plenty of savings. It wasn't a big deal, but yeah. You got you to gotta keep, and I mean, I grew up in the Midwest. My, my dad worked at a factory. Both my parents worked at the same job for 45 years. Like they, they never, yeah, you know, they never had a break. I think my dad had a break. When, like he was laid off from, you know, the factory wasn't going. But that's much different, <laughs> right, right, you know, than like what we experienced. So, but the cumulative effect, I think, is that you're you're carrying this baggage with you. Like it takes more than a weekend to really get rid of. So, you know, you leave on that Friday, and you're obviously leaving your co- some company for a reason. Now, you might be leaving just because you love everything about it, but you're maxed out in some way and so maybe this is your step up in the, in a new world but i think oftentimes you leave because you're unhappy where you're at otherwise how would you start looking again it's it's i think more rare in that case so there is always going to be some baggage that you carry even though you, you might let some of it go it's still kind of there like you still kind of physically feel that you're just like tense all the time right. I mean, that, that's something that i definitely felt from place to place so. yeah well so we'll bring up a yeah we're we're going to bring up a, a blog post about that in a sec because it had some interesting signs of of burnout. But I wanted to ask Yusuf and and Sasha about times that you felt that way. Did you also, did you notice it was cumulative or, I mean, how did you realize, hey, I might be burnt out? Um, I cried a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I felt helpless. Yeah, that's, yeah, I had that. I feel out of control and helpless. And I feel like the people around me are not focusing on critical things, but instead are focusing on the noise that surrounds critical things and that uh, I think I've read that too where it's you just you just feel like you're constantly reacting to things but you're never actually looking at what's causing problems right and honestly I've been consulting for so long that I've solved the problem by not committing to anything long term <laughs> I mean uh, that's really how I deal with that I just feel like a lot of places these days um, just do that to people. Well, so it's interesting. Even ones that don't want you to be like that just end up being like that. Right. Well, so it's it's interesting because when you said like you feel like you don't have control, I I, I go back to remembering the treadmill, but that you're on the treadmill and you're not in control of the pace button. Somebody else is, mm-hmm. and that's really 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 hard. And yeah, I mean that's that's an interesting that's an interesting question. Uh, we'll revisit that in a sec. Yusuf, did you have any interesting signs that you noticed? Yeah, I think um, you know waking up. In the middle of the night, because this one particular role I had to do, um, not only I wasn't only on call for um, North and South America, but also uh, customers in, in in Europe. So I had to cover a whole bunch of crazy time zones. And how how did they even think that was reasonable? It's like you're on call the entire world time zone. Pretty much. Well, they just yeah. 
The, the idea was is that if it got too crazy, you'd, you'd escalate, but then whenever I did that, nobody was around, and so you'd have a customer screaming at the other end. And right. Yeah, so no, I, I started, you know, the, the whole the, the visceral thing, you know, the, waking up in the, in the middle of the night, getting stressed out. I actually have a, this didn't happen to me, but a colleague of mine was uh, was cutting some, some vegetables once and ended up cutting himself. Just because he wasn't well, he, like, he tired he, or... Yeah, he was so deep into this problem, he wasn't thinking about what he was doing, and he ended up cutting himself pretty badly. He had to go, he had to, go to the hospital. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I think if it gets any more close to that point, like you're driving and you kind of find yourself like not paying attention or whatever, then yeah, you're probably either super tired or uh, super burnt out or both. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I remember a time when I was burnt out and, and it, it was funny. There was a, a new manager had been hired for that team and that manager, well, there were a number of issues there, but we were on a conference call discussing a particular problem and I was on the call and at that point I was pretty burnt out um, for you know a lot of the reasons we talked about you know a release schedule that was relentless and no time to automate anything because you have to work the weekend to do the release and blah 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 and I remember I, I can't remember what the issue was but I remember being on the phone and I got to a point where the manager kept speaking for me so Sasha it was that that sort of oh, feeling God. Oh, yeah, kept speaking, yeah and I I remember the VP of engineering was on that call and I and this was I, I God I was in my mid-20s I think I ended up just hanging up the phone because I, I was at a conference and so I was called that's why I was called into the call and it turns out that like two minutes after you know because the manager was just talking for me and I was like oh you want to talk for me fine I burn out this right I'm gonna hang up and then I guess apparently later the call the the there were some other people were like well does that sound right Paul and I just I wasn't on the call anymore (laughs) so it was like oh you know but yeah that sort of Sasha, kind of what you were saying, it's like that, I don't want to say acting out, but I mean, I, I think that's what I was doing because it was just yeah. gotten so bad. Now, uh, we'll link to this in the show notes. The, the uh, A psychologist named, um, well, a couple, Herbert Freudenberger and Gail North have actually separated the burnout process into 12 phases, which I think is interesting. And those phases are like the, the compulsion to prove oneself, uh, working harder, erratic, uh, ne- neglecting their own needs. So erratic sleeping, disrupted eating, pattern stuff like that this is an interesting one displacement of conflicts and and i'm curious if if you guys experienced this you know it's kind of sasha what you were talking about where it's like oh we don't you know in technical conversations at work it was like oh we don't have to solve that problem because we're in firefighting mode and you're like well yes we're deferring that technical debt and the discussion around that entirely Mm -hmm. and that's not okay it's an interesting like displacement of workplace conflicts but then also like personal ones too that's a big part on the personal side of things which is and i mean i can't speak for anyone who works from home i mean i normally have worked in an office and even though like i would leave the office and then come home like there's this delineation time between you know home and work every time that i come home in a rotten mood like my wife can absolutely tell you know and oh yeah and it's well it's, same <laughs> it's with like the roommate. very obvious right <laughs> yeah it's same with the roommate and it's like after a while it's like oh you know it's a one martini evening turns into a two martini evening in that compress you know decompress it's like right that's another really big one too right which is like how many so in in the times when it's been really really rough for me i mean i mean people who've hung out with me know that i enjoy having a taste from time to time but yeah uh, <laughs> no you don't say you don't say but uh you know i'd come home and it's like maybe i'd like pour like i don't know a little bit a couple ice cubes and just enjoy a nice you know a nice cocktail or something but you know one thing i was definitely noticing was like you know when it was like really bad and it was just like non-stop and work until like 1 a.m every day it's like those glasses maybe it was like two fingers of scotch or four fingers maybe it's just like pour some ice in until they float just go right and you kind of don't think about it right I noticed, and it's interesting, Yusuf, you brought up that point around um, the, the guy that like was working so hard on the problem, and he mentally had not left work. It's like, I, I, this sounds like what you're saying, Pete, it's like, the only way you can really turn that off is self-medicating, and people do that different ways, you know, whether it's, I, I knew someone, for them, it was video games, and, and they would, like, come home, they would eat, and then they would play video games for three or four hours until 
that nagging kind of stopped. For me, I noticed it was a good proxy for, it wasn't the number of fingers, but it was like, wait a minute, how often am I buying a replacement bottle of bourbon? And if it's like, I've been really in really bad situations, like I'm buying a replacement bottle once every week or so. That's a problem. Um, yeah. yeah, this is an issue, right? So. Yeah. The the rest of the, the way that they uh, separate this out, it's interesting. It's a displacement of conflicts, revision of values. So that actually, again, goes back into the, we can always take more technical debt, denial of emerging problems, and then this is where it gets interesting, the last five uh, or six states, withdrawal, odd behavioral changes, depersonalization, inner emptiness, depression, and burnout syndrome. I guess that's a technical term, burnout syndrome, can include total mental and physical collapse. So it's actually pretty stressful stuff. I've got one thing that I'd bring up. So one thing that I think might be I think it's too early to tell, but I think it's going to contribute to more burnout rather than less is this kind of new culture of unlimited vacation policies for companies. Sasha uh, has thoughts and feels on that. I do. They're, they're conflicted these days because we just we have it at my company and I feel like it's different there. <laughs> I'm against unlimited vacation because I think it, it keeps people from taking it and I, it makes people compare themselves to others and it makes people scrutinize each other and what they're doing in ways that you wouldn't if you had explicit vacation policies. I mean, if you really wanted to make sure that people took enough vacation and felt good about it, why don't you just declare that everybody gets two months of vacation every year? Well, so Pete, well, were we talking about this, I think, at some point? Um, the elephant in that room, the, uh, which is... The shark in the liability thing? Is that the thing that we talked about? Yeah. yeah, but that's interesting, too. Yeah, that's a really common thing where companies, they don't want to carry the financial liability of having to pay out that vacation. And, I mean, honestly, I would say in that situation, like, I'm not a accountant genius and I'm no CFO, but if, if I'm worried about that liability, then I might set up some sort of, like, accelerated, you know, expiration of that vacation where maybe you get four weeks, but it expires throughout the year or something. So you're really forced to take it over over the entire year and not just save it up for the end of the year or something. Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is I think the reason that they don't do that is is this was, I think, an accounting trick that was developed in California or if not, it's super popular here, not just because there's a lot of startups, but because there are laws around how that stuff is handled. And yeah, so- and I'm back in the last bubble, there was questionable financial stuff going down, uh, especially around this type of stuff, because it made companies look a lot like they had cash when it was all just giant liabilities. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, t- yeah. taxes too, right? So they don't they don't have to pay taxes. Like, let's say if, uh, somebody comes to leave and they have like six weeks of pay time off accrued. Yep. So, so in one of the startups that I worked for, and you know, actually the next thing I was going to bring up is sort of like other signs that the environment might be causing part of this problem. I asked to take vacation was told no. And so I always joke that my biggest payout from that startup was literally, <laughs> I think it was five and a half weeks of vacation, and wow. it came to something like low five digits, actually no, like mid five digits of salary. It was just insane. Yeah, I mean, the other part too on the vacation side, which I mean, I'm 100% guilty of this one, is that when we go on vacation, do we actually really go? I mean, are we still on our phones checking emails and checking in and doing all that stuff? I mean, I've had to, like, kind of force myself to kind of wait for vacations and then do a vacation that's out of the country where I actually won't have cell phone service or where I'll just be like, well, I'm not going to have cell service. I'm going to leave my phone at home and leave my laptop at home, that type of thing. Yeah, that's, well, I mean, this is a big problem again, too. And it, it, it's one of those things that I think it's hard when you have burnout. It's like you you don't you, you you can't even sense that. In fact, that was another big thing at the DevOps Days Open Space on burnout was the fact that family members and friends had to tell people, "Hey, you're you're burnt out, and it's really bad." But if you're in the thick of it, to your point about vacation, Pete, it's like you you feel that that need that hero need to like be still looped into things. And in fact, I don't know about you, but for me, it was like, well, if I'm not looped in, things are gonna get all. F- while I'm gone and it'll be worse which is of course you know part of the major problem yeah I mean Jennifer's talk at DevOps Days was really great because it did talk specifically about that I mean situations I've been in and I've you know I put myself in these situations and luckily I've I've learned from that a bit so I do it less and less now but you know you feel like you know if I don't check in during that week then I'm going to come back to all this email and all this stuff and then I got to spend time to catch up but there's going to be more coming in and right you know, it's like, if you think that way, it's just, it's never going to end, you know, it's, it's, there's no way for it really to stop. And especially at a vacation time when you really do want to disconnect, 
you know, it's it's kind of a hard time to always be your thoughts always kind of going back to to work time and that that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to bring up too, talking about kind of the signs of this problem. Um, we'll link to this in the show notes. There's a great blog post from a guy that does software team like leadership stuff, but. I guess he teaches a class, and uh, there was a discussion in the class about signs that you might be in survival mode, and a lot of these will be familiar to people that are kind of fighting burnout. Some of the more interesting ones, there's a perception or feeling of continuous urgency. The team is forced into a state where they are always reacting to changes, not being able to choose whether to plan some things out. Yeah, the lack of context one is, is, that's like spot on, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You feel like... You're, we're we're just doing you're just doing stuff, but what is like what what are we even doing here? You know. Yeah. But you won't stop and ask that question because exactly you're too urgent feeling. <laughs> right. Exactly. There's no time to reduce risk, technical deaths, or bus factors. This is another one which I'm we all probably dealt with. The team is unable to deliver. But here's the one that actually hit me, and I'm curious if this hit any, anyone else. Being non-productive for a long period of time. When you are burnt out, has anyone ever noticed that they're staring off into space? at work for like 10 minutes not doing anything or you know they load up Facebook or whatever to sort of decompress at work for a few minutes and you're sitting there looking at it but your, your brain is just wandering yeah I have I might, yeah that's oh yeah I mean I think that's when you know it's time to go right I mean well that's you know. Yeah, I, yeah, hope I mean, you do. that's like uh, that's like in meetings, right? You kind of sit there, you're in a meeting, sprint planning or something like that, and I mean, it's like someone's talking, and you just kind of just your brain just kind of turns off because it's almost like it doesn't matter. Yeah, none of, the, none of this matters because it, again, it's that lack of context, and we're always just going to be reacting. So, so. Oh, but I haven't found myself in that condition. I just know it's there. Like, I get into meetings, and I have this sense of utter futility. Like, nobody's going to give a shit about what I say, and nobody. Going to listen, mm-hmm. or they'll pretend to, and we'll walk out and we'll all be the same. And that's really a reason why I won't work for big companies anymore and why I'm so allergic to corporate structure for myself. You know, I can certainly consult there, but I couldn't actually like work for one anymore because I know that my ability to believe that anything good can come out of them is, is gone. Yeah. Well, so here's a cynical kind of question for the panel, but I'm really curious. Do you think it's structured that way? And what I mean by that is in the situation where that I would consider the most sort of burnt out, Jennifer's talk was really bittersweet because it was dredging up like all of these issues for me that were really difficult to deal with for a long time because it was like, go, 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 use this person. And then when I, you know, admitted, well, I'm burnt out and people were asking me, well, you know, why are you, why are you hanging up on conference calls and things like that? And I said, well, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's, it's because I'm burnt out. The organization's reaction was, oh, well, it's time to get rid of this person. And so I guess I'm curious, you know, so it's like, well, we, we use this person as much as we can and now it's a piece of garbage, throw, throw him away. Do you think it's overly cynical that that, that is kind of the, the default state where it's like companies hire people and then they run them at 110% and then they people either self-select and leave or, or they get rid of them? Is, is that kind of systemic problem created by the structure? I mean, the thing you were talking about, Sasha, with sort of the, the big corporate structure, I mean, is there any way around that or is that, am I being too cynical? Or I think some places care and work towards keeping you from doing that and some places will actually try to actively work to move people around to keep them from a lot of the things that come from being in the same place for too long. Some places don't. Like, I worked at a place where we all found it very difficult to get diversity of work because we were too valuable in the spaces we were in. So oh, most yeah. of us left. Yeah. But I've had people, like, I've, I left one gig, like a longer-term consulting gig, and they were like, no, no, what can we do to keep you with us? And I'm like, you can't. Nothing. It's too late. It's too late. It's like it's like having a breakup conversation with somebody and having them go, no, wait, I'll change. And you're like, no, if you were serious, you would have changed three months ago when I brought these things up. But you don't care for real. You just are desperate to keep me, and you probably don't even know why. Right. So, yeah. I, you know, people just, it just really depends. Every, uh, yeah, every company that I've been at has... I mean, it's definitely kind of rolled the gamut from working as hard as possible from, like, my consulting time was, like, billable hours, right? You're billing or get out. So they would want to run people at 95, 105%. They'd, they'd run you right to the edge. Right. But other companies have been great where, and I've, it's a lot of it has been on me kind of as I've gotten older to really acknowledge that I'm kind of getting into a bad place. And 
instead of just like bottling it up for the inevitable like F you and F you I'm out of here. It's like <laughs> I've started more recently and this is probably in the past five, six years or so having like the blunt conversation of like, listen, I'm not happy. And it's not like I, I sit down and say I quit, which is what it you know would have been years and years ago. But more recently, just sit down and have those honest conversations like, listen, I'm not happy. And every single time I've done that, I mean, I've, and maybe I've had great bosses and great companies, but you know, the answer is usually like, well, what are the things you like doing? Have you do more of that? What are the things you don't like doing? And then at least when I leave those those meetings, there's like an action plan, right? Like right. A, a mental health action plan where we can have these things that I'm going to do more of that I like and less of that I don't like. And now granted, I'll be perfectly honest, if I went into one of those meetings and they were like, hey, listen, the job is all this stuff that you don't want, in my head mentally, I went into every single one kind of ready to go. So, you know, you kind of have to play both sides of it. And right. hopefully you're at a good place where they're like, let's get you into the thing that you really want to do. Well, just that's just point. I mean, that's a great example then. It's like, this is, you know, it's it's kind of like, listen, I am putting you on notice that I am unhappy. And you can then get a good sense of whether the, those changes are things that they're willing to fix and follow through on fixing, or if it's, as Sasha was saying, just a big kind of joke. And Yeah, you can't expect your company to read your mind that you're upset. You can't just walk around. Yeah, that's a life that's lesson right there. Right? It's not just work. It's everything. It's, it's yeah. so you true, expect, right? <laughs> you cannot make assumptions. You can't expect people to read your minds. You can't expect them to know that you're unhappy, especially when we're trained so well to hide a lot of that stuff. So, oh. like, if you're unhappy and if you feel like you're getting on that slippery slope, then you need to take a minute and be rational about what's going on and maybe write some stuff down because you don't want to just like go into your manager's office and melt down on them about stuff but actually like be like this is why I feel out of control, unloved, the futility of life. These are things that are problems. And a lot of times what you're going to hear is, I know these are problems and we just need to get through this period. And that may or may not be a legit answer in that this is a unique situation, then maybe you can ride it. But if it's not, then, I mean, you know, you guys listen to me all the time. I'm a big fan of ditching places that don't meet my expectations. Yeah, uh, I realize that not everybody does that, but I'm really willing to walk out on things that don't work for me, which, you know, that's partly why I'm still single, too. <laughs> but <laughs> well, that's you know, the point, right? You want, you want to make that, that you know, acknowledgement early on. I mean, the, the best story that I can give for the opposite is when, when times were bad and coming home and having a cocktail, right? And then I'm, like, reading emails at midnight, which I shouldn't be doing because, you know, I should be in and bed. And you're getting or, angry all over again. And I'm getting angry yeah. again. And then I'll read an email and I'll get angrier. And then I'll start typing a response. And I'm not just going to type this response back to the, the sender. I'm going to make sure it goes to the CEO. And <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make sure it goes to the CEO. I'm going to send it to every I'm going to CC at all at. Yeah, I mean, this this is a real thing that happened, like, literally last year at Dine. I, I was super upset with the way that something was being handled. And, like, you know, I sent a very – it was not the best email I could have sent because I was just – it just the anger kind of builds up and up and up over time. Right? It's it's going to burst. How it bursts it is different for everyone. And in, in that case, it was like it burst down in this horrific email. Some of which my points were valid. Some of which they were insane. And most Emotional. of it, I was just mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I was just emotionally responding. But you, to yeah, and things. you definitely you undermine your cause when you respond to things like that. So as a counterpoint to that, because I am also famous for some fire me emails in my past. Uh, I <laughs> you know, had, not you. <laughs> I recently had a situation at work now where I got an email that caused me to immediately be enraged. Like the worst of the road rage kind of rage. The kind that makes you want to like throw things and the, smash stuff. The care you feel it right? like well up inside of you, that one, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah like you're going to burst with anger, right? And I was like... And I started to respond to the email, and I thought, nope, I'm just going to go away. I need to, get, I, need, I need to not be angry because people at my company are awesome, and they're really great people for the most part, and this is probably a mistake. This is just somebody who's making a mistake and doesn't understand something, and I'm going to let this go until I can respond. And it took me until, like, 4 a.m. to go to bed because I was upset. I was really upset. But as I was laying in bed and still fretting over this, I came up with the words that I could use to send a response that would help them understand why what they sent me was completely wrong and inappropriate in a way that wasn't like being angry with them, mm -hmm. right? And I was able to actually like get some dialogues going with a couple of different people about the problem in that email. And it all turned out mostly okay. So it, oh, it's so really you, hard. You, I mean, you, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you know, you, so you didn't write up the email and then just 
click send and reckless of No. Uh, I actually, like, started to respond, and, like, one angry sentence into it, I was like, I can't send that. There's no way. I mean, at a corporate job, I could have, or someplace with a lot more buffer, but when you work for a small company, you have to, everybody is a person, and you're close to everyone, and you have to really think about how what you say affects people, and just because somebody made me angry didn't mean that I was going to be effective if I ranted back at them about how stupid they were. Yeah. So, like, I was able to stop emailing immediately because I really value where I'm at right now a lot. I mean, I care about the people there, and I care about, I don't know how to say it, my position, I, my place, you know? I, I, I care about what's going to happen there and, and how we treat each other. So it was something that has always been hard for me, and it's hard for a lot of people when they're in the moment. But I, I think it's a good thing to learn, if you can, to just stop. If you are angry or upset and if you find yourself in that state all the time and I have on projects then you have other problems like it's maybe just time to go like there's a lot of work out there yeah. even for people well, with families and stuff like that there is a lot of work some of it remote some of it completely different um, yeah. there's no reason you have to stay someplace where you are unhappy yeah that's really the crux of it right now is that there's there's literally no reason to not be somewhere that you're not absolutely in love with I mean I, and again you can I'm be like... a fraction of competent <laughs> and still have your plick of places where you want to go. I mean, there's a lot of work out there. So I, I did want to actually cover some of the actually super simple tips uh, on burnout.io talking about how to address it. And it, it's interesting. I mean, they have a pretty simple easy to follow flowchart. It's like determine if it's self-inflicted or determine if it's an external pressure and then because we've all talked about the hero complex so figuring that out if you're angry about something else and that's causing burnout you know to leak over into kind of other areas of your life which I've, I've had friends that have had that they've been stressed for whatever reason. I, I don't um, even think you need to look at that list. I think if you can remember better times oh yeah that one time when life was better, and you actually, not just a, a real simple type thing, where you're actually feeling happier because of that, remembering that better time, then it's time to get out. I, I mean, I think burnout.io is great, but it doesn't have to be that complicated. You don't have to actually, have to actually go through a whole flowchart of whatever. Just remember a better time, and if it was a lot better and it makes and you're feeling happier at that moment in time, get out. Yeah. yeah. yeah one thing that I've used is kind of like, I don't know, I call it my six-month rule, which is if I start somewhere, like, first six months in, it's like, you know, you got to give some time to kind of get your feet settled, you right? pass for all of that stupid stuff that may go on because it just may be something. Yeah, like, it's just, That's you know, funny. I use that one in relationships, too. If you don't know that it's going to be a lifetime by six months, it's probably not going to be yeah. a lifetime. Well, I would say that I give it six months, and then I, I assess, like, the state of things. And then I'll always give it another six months, because, again, if we're talking, like, companies, right, you don't want to jump super fast. But I'll give it six more months, and then at the end of that time period, so one year after, I'm going to basically say, was the last six months better or worse than the first six months? If it was worse, then it's probably time. It's like it may. It's probably not going to get better. But if it was better, then it's like all right, let's do another one. And my biggest thing is that I've I've had a really hard time of kind of separating emotional like attachment to the company. Like I can't leave because I'm doing all this stuff like the the stupid hero syndrome. And then the other part, which is like I should not be here because I come home and angry and upset at everyone. So yeah. you know, it's like this this like weird balance you have to do. So. So that was my like thing of like, well, what if I just break it off at these six month time periods where it's like take the emotion just right out of it, where it's like, you know what, six, three, six, nine, whatever time period goes by, and you're like, you know what, it's not getting any better at this point after being in for this long. I think it's it's never gonna happen, and that's okay. Well, so the one thing that came out at the open space, which I actually brought up, and I realized this: if you are prone to burnout and in any sort of way, by which I mean you've experienced it basically once before, and you kind of know what that's like for you. After I experienced that, it, I was very clear in my mind that I never want money to be uh, an issue for me in terms of I can't quit this job because I need money. And I know this is easier said than done and, and people have families and, and mortgages and requirements like that. But even if you know that you're prone to burnout or it's something you're concerned about, like even putting a little bit of money, 50 or 100 bucks away a month for a while, you know, save that, put it away. 
uh, you never want that to be the reason that you can't be like, no, I'm really, really unhappy. I'm really burnt out. This situation's not getting better, but I can't do anything because their worthiness at 120% and I can't even go and do job interviews because... Then you're trapped. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I actually, like, the first day I was kind of, quote, unemployed, I wrote basically a blog post because I wanted just to kind of talk about, like, some of the thoughts through my head. And, and money was actually a big part of that blog post, which is, you know, years ago when I was deeply in debt and, and had no money and no real job or whatever, a friend of mine gave me great advice, which is, like, always have your account, right? Always have this amount of money, which I thought was just a great name, so it's like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta have one of these things. But And it took me a, a very, very long time to get there uh, which is where I'm at now, which is, you know, having like six months or a year's worth of salary just sitting there like an insurance policy. And if you're a person who rolls in the startup world, I mean, I, I love startups and they're super flexible in how they might be there one day and not the other. But also things can get crazy really fast. So I think having that account there so that you can take the time. And also, even if let's say you were to find a job, how great would it be if you could just take a month or two? Because financially the cash is there, right? It's like an insurance policy on your mental health, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then the other, I mean, you brought this up, Pete, just take a break. Because I made that same mistake you made where it's like job to job to job to job. And and I did that in my 20s. I would not do it anymore. It's just a bad idea. And it was a bad idea in my 20s. But we think in our 20s, like, oh, I can do it. It's fine. And it's, yeah, just tell you your state that. Just tell your new company you're going to take two weeks and show up. I, there'll be 0% of those companies that will have an issue with it. They'll actually be and, really excited. They, and if they, want they do... And if they do, that's like, okay, I'm not working for you, right? You know, It's a little bit of a red flag. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, we would be interested in listeners' tips for dealing with burnout and their experiences. You can tweet us, Ship Show Podcast, on the Tweet Sphere, or shoot us an email for those longer stories. We actually, these episodes are always interesting. We'll get emails from people that tell some pretty interesting stories, and uh, this is one of those things that's hard to talk about, but uh, we, we definitely need to talk about needs to be discussed in our industry so we're going to take a break and we'll be uh, back in a moment on the show Welcome back to the Chip Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed. So for our last segment tonight, we're going to bring back an end segment that we actually haven't done for quite a while. It's called the Comment Block, and it's uh, an opportunity for one of our co-hosts to have the stage to discuss something that is important to to them uh, and that they would like to share with you. And I'm actually going to be talking tonight about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. We've all probably heard of Heartbleed, the OpenSSL bug that caused all sort of ruckus on the internet. And we talked about in News and Views the new uh, DTLS bug that was uh, discovered early in this month that is just as serious in some uh, cases as Heartbleed and may cause just as much damage. When I started to look at the OpenSSL Heartbleed bug, I was reminded of actually something that I had learned back in college, and I went and dug up some old college paperwork. It was my first software engineering course. Uh, I won't tell you what year it was, but it was by a professor, a professor named Clint Staley. And uh, I wanted to read, he, he gave us a handout called What to Do When You Can't Find the Bug. I mean, it's a handout he gives to all of his freshman uh, software engineering students. And I wanted to quote from it. It reads in part, Software is the most complex artifact made by man, and it is unique in that the smallest error in any part of the product can cause catastrophic failure of the whole. You must maintain an almost obsessive concern for orderliness when writing software. You can leave your bed unmade and keep piles of paper on your desk, but when you write software, you have to be the ultimate neat freak. Any disorder should bother you so much that you'll fix it. He goes on to say, Think of it as house cleaning. Software bugs are like cockroaches. They hide in the darkest, messiest parts of your code. To get rid of cockroaches, you wouldn't hunt them down one by one. Instead, you'd clean up the house and get rid of their hiding places. Do the same in your code. And I think Professor Staley's comments are as applicable to build systems as they are to code. Most of us have probably never had the pleasure, if you can call it that, of having to build OpenSSL. We just use the package that's from our Linux distribution and install it, usually by default, and everything is just hunky-dory. But for those of us who have had to build it, for whatever reason, whether it be Gentoo Freak like I am, or for different weird platforms perhaps like Windows, which I've also had to do, it's a bit of an arduous process, far from the configure, make, and make install that we've come to expect in the Linux world. 
its build system is quite antiquated and doesn't include modern features that you would expect from most of your build systems. Things such as object directories to separate out the object files from the source files. It has a number of odd shell scripts and dependencies that make building it on Windows a bit of a nightmare. And if you thought you hated shell scripts, well it turns out that one of OpenSSL's most touted features, its use of assembly in many of its calculations, are actually generated by Perl scripts that are then integrated into the build process. It's really just a mess. It's interesting to note that LibreSSL opened BSD's project to clean up OpenSSL. Their first act was to remove about 90,000 lines of code. Included in this was support for weird platforms like Vax VMS and even Windows, and also Unix versions that aren't commonly used anymore, like Ultrix, if anybody remembers that. They also replaced the OpenSSL build system wholesale with a standard OpenBSD build system to leverage all of that work that had been done and to standardize it within BSD, which is also partially why they warn against ripping that out and using it on other platforms until they They've had the chance for their portability team to actually look at the implications for building LibreSSL on, for instance, Linux, and yes, even Windows. There are such examples of good build systems around. A lot of people may malign auto tools, and I certainly have no love for it, but it has standardized the configure, make, and make install process that we all have come to know, even if we don't love it. But other build systems, such as the Linux kernel or that seen in Chrome or the Mozilla web browsers, illustrate the fact that investing in the build system is an important step to keeping the environment in which you're developing your code clean and keeping the cockroaches out of the apartment. Are build systems a good proxy for discerning something about the reliability and risk of a particular software product? I think it is. If nothing else, it's a good place to start, at least to see how much the development community around a particular project cares that you can replicate their work. And you have to wonder, if nobody's taking a look at the build system, if nobody's keeping that clean and tidy, what other areas of the code are they neglecting where cockroaches and security vulnerabilities are quietly festering? It's hard to tell until something like Heartbleed happens, and then something like Heartbleed happens right after Heartbleed. So for listeners interested in the conferences that are coming up, Velocity, Santa Clara, June 24th through the 26th, obviously, in Santa Clara, followed immediately by DevOps Day's Silicon Valley. Both of those events are coming together. Tickets are available for both of them. We'll put links in the show notes. We should mention we got confirmation after we taped this episode that the uh, folks over at O'Reilly are also providing a 20% discount to Velocity, Santa Clara, for ShipShow listeners. Listeners can avail of themselves of that discount, the discount code SHIPSHOW20, that's SHIPSHOW20, and we'll uh, put a link in the show notes that has that discount, so certainly uh, check the show notes, use that link. We also wanted to mention that the DevOps Days Silicon Valley organizers have provided a couple of diversity tickets the underrepresented in tech diversity work that we're doing. You can find details on that by going to theshipshow.com slash diversity. It'll have the dates and when you need to send emails by and all of that good stuff. So if you are a member of an underrepresented group in tech, check that out, theshipshow.com slash diversity. And then in July, OzCon is coming up. And then uh, actually, Pete will be at Agile 2014. Florida in the end of July. Yes. Is that awesome? <laughs> yes. Uh, it would, it, it's probably fine. Well, and DevOps Days Minneapolis, too. Oh, yes. DevOps Days Discriminator. That. That's a good catch. Uh, July 17th and 18th, obviously, in Minneapolis. I know our friend friend of the podcast, Bridget, is on the committee working, working that. And you are going to be keynoting, aren't you, Sasha? I am. Yes. It's my first. Go see that to see Sasha keynote for the first time. I have no idea what I'm going to say yet, but there will be lolcats. Well, it will be awesome. Then I'm sold. All right, so from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Portland, Oregon, this week, this is Sasha signing off. From Boston, Massachusetts, this is Pete signing off. And we'll see you all in a couple of weeks.